Good morning. It's good to see you. So we sang the song, and the question in the song was, is he worthy? And the answer was, he is. So I have a question for you. Are you worthy? It's a harder question, isn't it? So by the end of the message, let's see if we can answer that question. So the title for this morning is Trying Harder, The Kiss of Death. And I thought, should I really put The Kiss of Death as a title of a message? But I did. Trying Harder is The Kiss of Death. And we're going to see that in the closing chapters of Nehemiah. So this is our seventh message in our last message in Nehemiah. And uh, together, together we're going to close out this book. And I was thinking, don't you sometimes just want to uh, get your life right with God? I mean, we hear that, right? You, you need to get your life right with God. And people need to get right with God. And sometimes we just want to stop. We want to change what we're doing. And we just want to be perfect after that, right? Because we just got to get it together because we struggle and we struggle and we struggle. And then sometimes we want to take opportunities to recommit to God and to draw a line in the sand and say, God, this time it will be different. I really mean it this time. I really mean it. I'm serious. I'm serious about my sin. I'm serious about my struggle. I'm serious about giving into this temptation that I just keep giving into. And I am going to focus on that, and I am going to be recommitted to God. Well, so did the returning exiles to Jerusalem and Judah. Those who had been uh, up, up, in North, up in Babylon, and they'd been in exile, they'd been in captivity, and they were released, and a few different waves of people came back, and they got back, and we get to the end of Nehemiah, and they're feeling the same way. So let's see how well that worked for them. So after the wall is built and the Israelites confess their sins, they recommit their obedience to God and they dedicate the wall. So the wall is finished. And as we're going to see in chapters 9, 10, 11, 12, and 13, and most of them, most of those chapters are lists of people. So we don't have to read through all those. They get their one one moment of fame in the Bible. A lot of those people, um, and it would be, yes, it would be interesting to go through and to see where they all connected throughout scriptures, but we're not going to do that this morning. But we're going to look through chapters 9 through 13, just the highlights. It's just going to take me probably five minutes, and we're going to see that after the wall is built, the Israelites, they, they go before God, and they're sorry. They're so sorry. And they, they, they run down their list of grievances and the grievances of their, against God of their ancestors, of their forefathers, and they confess to God and then they recommit to God. And it's, it's, it's like a huge pinky swear where they, where they prick their fingers and they put their finger to God's finger and they swear that they're not going to do this again. And then they have this big dedication of this wall that is completed and then they go forward. I mean... You guys have had building programs. You know how it goes, right? You, you, you work on it and you, you, you dedicate it to God and then everything goes great after that, right? I mean, it's done, right? The edifice is up. It's finished. The work is done. And then everything is wonderful after that. And everybody just follows Jesus. Well, 
doesn't always work that way. And uh, here in, in, in Nehemiah chapter 9, look at the first three verses with me. It says, on the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites, they gathered together. They were even fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. They were sorry. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners, and they stood in their places, and they confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were. They read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day, spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. So this is great, right? We want people to do this. We want people to come before God and to confess, and they were certainly doing that. Now, you go on in uh, the next chapter, chapter or later on in the chapter, after they reviewed their failed history of obedience to God, you get to verse 36, and they say, but see, God, we're slaves today. Even though we're out of exile and we're back in the land, we're slaves in the land you gave our ancestors so that they could eat its fruit and the other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. So in view of all this, we're making a binding agreement. We're even going to put it in writing. We're going to write it down. And our leaders, our Levites and our priests, are affixing their seals to it. It's interesting here, though. Their leaders, their Levites and their priests, their religious leaders, were going to affix their seal to it. And after naming all those who sealed their recommitment to God with an oath, in verse 29 of chapter 10, it says this, All these now join their fellow Israelites and nobles and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully. And then I I bolded this, I put it in red, and I underlined it. All the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God. Are they setting themselves up? Are they like that nice golf ball being teed up, ready to be just whacked? I mean, they, they have, with an oath, decided to follow the law of God, to carefully obey all the commands. In fact, they go on in verse 30. We promise, we promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or to take their daughters for our sons. We won't even buy on the Sabbath. That's been happening, and we've been destroying the Sabbath, so we're not going to do that. In fact, we'll even bring the first fruits to the house of God, and we will give our firstborn to God as the law commands us. And then they dedicate the wall of Jerusalem in verse 43 of chapter 12. And on that day, they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. And so we're in chapter 12 of 13 chapters, and it's looking good. They've recommitted themselves, and and the sound of rejoicing is all over the place because God has protected them. And now they're a fortified city again, and they've recommitted themselves to God. 
But how does the book of Ezra and Nehemiah end? How does it end? In verse 13, chapter 13 is the final chapter. And it says there in verse 4 that Eliashib, the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat of evil fame? And he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles and also the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil prescribed for the Levites, the musicians and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. Well, where is all that stuff now? Where are they keeping that? Do they have need of any storage space? Are the people bringing any of that? In fact, it goes on and throughout chapter 13, it says that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them. Why, Nehemiah asked him the question, why is the house of God being neglected? We're in the last chapter of Ezra and Nehemiah. They've gone through all this stuff. Ezra's brought them back. Nehemiah's back. Zerubbabel was, leading, was the leader. All of this has happened. And in the last chapter, Nehemiah's like, why? Why is the house of God being neglected? People in Judah were treading wine presses on the Sabbath. They were desecrating the Sabbath day. The men of Judah had married foreign women. Hadn't they learned from old King Solomon? They gave their daughters in marriage to foreign men. And some Levites, Nehemiah said, defiled the priestly office. And that is the end. Let's close in prayer. Oh, it's a little bit more. I mean, that's, that's depressing, isn't it? That's kind of depressing. What are we to make of this? It, isn't it true, though, throughout the Old Testament? Now, in Nehemiah, we're getting to the end chronologically We're just about there to the end of the Old Testament time period. We're in the 400s B.C. And the people, through everything they'd gone through, from being a thousand plus years earlier, being taken out of the promised land with Moses, from Abraham and, and his descendants, and then going into Egypt, and then coming out of Egypt, then going through the period of the judges, and then going through uh, Saul and, and David and Solomon, and then the divided kingdom. Then the Assyrian captivity, to the northern tribes were gone, never to return. Then 150 or so years later, the, the, uh, the Babylonian captivity. And then they come back in the land. And then God sends Nehemiah from the king's palace all the way out to rebuild the city. And the city is rebuilt. And then Nehemiah is gone back to the king for a while and he comes back and it's just all gone to pot. It's just all gone to seed. It's just back the way it was. Is your life ever like that? I mean, do you ever have those times where you get, like the walls are built in your life and you feel like you've got it together. You've conquered those sins. You've you've pressed them down. You've managed them well. They're no longer rearing their ugly head. And you think everything's going fine. And then you don't even know what happened. Just like, just like that, all of a sudden, you're, you're, you're back in the, the, 
the way the, the wall's broken down over here. And look what's, look what's getting it. It's broken down over here too. And look, look what's getting in. And then the enemy's pushing back here. And there's all kinds of... And all of a sudden you realize, I don't have it together in my life. And I recommitted to God. I recommitted to God at that, that big, that big uh, uh, thing that we had for two weeks here. What was the name of that? You guys had it here for two weeks. Yeah, life action was on the tip of my tongue. I mean, life action, what a, what a phenomenal two weeks. After the end of those two weeks, the walls were up and fortified. Nothing could stop us. And then, huh, we're, it seems like we're back. So, so we applaud their commitment in the previous chapters. And then we just, SMH, shaking my head, at their delivery. They made this commitment, but then they didn't deliver. They didn't measure up. They, they couldn't sustain their obedience. They had no long-term follow-through. They made a yes decision, yes for God, but then somehow they lived a no life. You know, we applaud our commitment and recommitment and rededication Dedication, then rededication, and then confession, and then revival and rededication. And then we shake our heads at our delivery. We don't deliver. I don't measure up. I can't seem to sustain the obedience. I have no long-term follow-through. And I made a yes. I thought it was, it was, in in the moment it was a yes decision. But my life is like a no life. Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever get to that point where you just feel like, what is wrong with me? I think sometimes that I have a misplaced source for my commitment, and maybe you do too. Maybe instead of the source of our commitment being Jesus, we fall back into that age-old trap of believing that the source of our commitment is us is our heart. That, that, that we're the one, if we would just get it together, like one of these days we're going to get it together. And then we're going to stand before God and we're going to be happy because he's going to be happy because we've finally gotten it together. This is exactly what these people were experiencing. I mean, they, they just decided, they looked back over their past and they decided their future was going to be different. And I mean, they got it together. You look back at when they went through the Red Sea and the Egyptians were hot on their hooves and they crossed over and then God buried the Egyptians and then he did all those miracles for them. I mean, if anything could light a fire under them, that would have. And even that didn't. God himself came down in the flesh, and the disciples walk with him for three. If anything could light a fire of commitment and obedience under a human being, walking with Jesus would be it. And look at Peter. The night he was, oh yeah, that's about me, Peter says, the night he was betrayed. Because it wasn't just Judas who betrayed Jesus. It was Peter I don't even know the guy, doggone it. 
He probably used his Jewish swearing, right? Um, so the question is, what is this life of grace fueled by? Is it fueled by obedience? Is it fueled by behavior? Or, or could the life of faith be fueled by grace? Like, we're okay being justified by grace, right? We're good with that. We're good with being saved by grace. We're good with someday we're going to be in heaven and we're going to be glorified, and that's all by grace. It's not, nothing of myself. But somehow this process of sanctification, of cleaning us up today, now, while we're living today on the planet now, somehow that, that falls back on us because we've got these things called the Ten Commandments, which I always thought as a kid were the Ten He-mandments because the T on the the was all fancy on the special Ten Commandments plate my mom had on the wall. And I didn't recognize it as a letter, so I grew up thinking it was the Ten He-mandments. So I still think of that. Either way, there were ten of them. Whether they were the commandments or, or he-mandments, I mean, we got to follow them, right? It's up to me. Sanctification is up to me. So we're saved. You've heard this before. It bears hearing almost every day for us humans. We're saved by grace, but then we live by the law. And we beat ourselves up over it. So, could it be as easy as just checking the Jesus circle and putting the forbidden slash mark through us? When it comes to, where does our righteousness come from? How can we live our life day after day? Can we really live by grace and not law as easily as we were saved by grace and not law? So, this, this slide, this looks okay to us, but go to the slide before it. That previous side. That doesn't look okay, does it? There's something about me being part of the process that only seems just. So we think that at least take, keep the check mark by Jesus, but at least take the hash mark off of us so we're still involved in the life of faith. But go to the next one. But we like that. Yeah, we don't, we don't want to have to do the law but we live like we have to. Because if we mess up, what do we feel? We feel like God doesn't love us. God doesn't like us. God's, you know, frowning upon our bad behavior. Let's see. The next slide. Paul wrote to a group of people who were having this problem. More recently. Not that much more recently. Because Nehemiah's people were 2,400 years ago, these people were 19 and a half hundred years ago, still a long time ago. But Paul wrote to them because they were basing their life with God on their own performance and on their own behavior. And here's what he said to them. But suppose we seek to be made right with God through faith in Christ, and then we're found guilty because we've abandoned the law. Would that mean Christ has led us into sin? Now, we see here that, that phrase, we have abandoned the law. By the way, they were supposed to, by the way. It wasn't like they abandoned something they shouldn't have abandoned. They were supposed to abandon the law when it came to a life of faith. 
So by abandoning the law, which was the right thing to do, would that mean Christ has led us into sin? Absolutely not. He said, rather, I am a sinner if I rebuild the old system of law I already tore down. So faith in the gospel, faith in Christ, it tears down that system of law in our lives, and now we're relying on a system of grace and faith in God, trust. Verse 19, because when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. (laughs) That's going to happen every single time. Every time you try and keep doing what is right, you're going to get condemned by yourself because you're not going to be able to do it. And if you're like, but that doesn't seem right. But find the, one, find the person in here that it ever worked out for. It's kind of funny, isn't it? It's called the good book, but there's not a lot of good in here sometimes. Well, there's a lot of good, but there's a lot of bad too. Like every single person who ever tried to follow Jesus or follow Yahweh failed, except one person. Right? Except one person. It condemned me. So I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all its requirements so that I might live for God. This is this Paul speaking. I tried to keep the law. It didn't work. So I died to the law. How did he die to the law? There's only one who died to the law. And because he died we also died with him, right? We died with him. That's how Paul died to the law. He stopped trying to meet all its requirements. Remember the title? Trying Harder, the kiss of death. (laughs) Paul quit. He quit trying to meet all the requirements of the law. Verse 20, he says, my old self has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. So Paul's saying, this life, in fact, he's going to go on and actually say this. I should just read it. But this life is not my life. I died. It's Christ living his life through me. So I live in this earthly body by what? Not trying, but by trusting. By trusting in the Son of God. Who did what? Who loved me and gave himself for me. So here's a clue from the Scriptures. When we're living our life of faith, stop trying. We can stop trying. We can just start trusting. Trusting in the Son of God. Oh, that's funny. That's the thing that we do to get saved. (laughs) Wow. Eureka! It's the thing we do to live our life of faith. Trusting in the Son of God. He loved me. He gave himself for me. I don't treat the grace of God as meaningless, Paul says. When we keep the basis of our sanctification on ourselves, that we're the basis, we're treating the grace of God as meaningless. The grace is, grace is powerful. It's like one of those as seen on TV, spray cleaners. You know, they just... Then they take this clean white cloth and they just go like this. It's gone. It's beautifully clean, right? The grace of God is even more powerful than that. You give it all the greasy sin 
in your life that you can give it. And the grace of God is more powerful. That's true. Paul said that once in other words. And then he had to say, after saying that, he had to say, but should we just keep sinning so grace may abound? No, 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 no. That's not the point. That's not the point. But the point is, you do have sin, and we do have sin, and we're going to sin. And God's grace is, is powerful enough for all of that. Because he, he ends it. This is so powerful here. For if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. So if obeying God today can keep you right with God, then the cross of Christ would have to lose its power. Our rightness with God is based on our trust in Jesus, our trust in this triune God who oversees creation, who lives inside of us, and who always is at the right hand of the Father making intercession based on the nail prints in his hands. Are you feeling like a failure today? Are you like the people in Nehemiah's day coming to the end of, I mean, it's always the end of our life, right? Today is the most recent part of our life. So we've gotten to the end. I mean, if we were to go, if we were to drop over at this moment, we would, this would be the end, right? It's always now. It's never yesterday. It's never tomorrow. It's always now. So we've gotten to this point in our life. If you, like the people in Nehemiah's day, are finding yourself, oh, I keep committing and committing and recommitting and I'm, I'm, I've failed, then maybe you need to take the basis of that commitment off of you and put it on Jesus. Because we fail, but if we take that commitment and we put it on Jesus, is there a chance that he could fail us? Not a chance. There's a term that involves the word snowball that I won't use. You know what it is. You can think it. Not a snowball's chance. God, Jesus is not going to fail. He's not going to fail us. So our commitment resides in him. So we get up every day, no matter what happened yesterday, We get off the ground no matter how hard we've fallen. We rebound from our sin no matter how heinous it was because we trust in Jesus, not in ourselves. See, because if we decide we're going to commit and commit and recommit and we're going to do it this time and we're going to like laser focus to get rid of this sin in our life, we're laser focusing on the wrong thing. We have to laser focus on Jesus and on who he says we are. Not what our behavior indicates in our fallen mind who we we are, but who God says we are. So while trying harder is the kiss of death, trusting deeply is the way of life in Jesus. So don't try, trust. I told my kids growing up, I'm like, they'll say, well, I'm going to try and do that. I'm like, well, don't try, just do it. Get it done. Right? I'm glad God doesn't treat us that way, right? I'm going to try to be better, God. Don't try. Do it. Ah. Like the Israelites at the mountain as it was quaking. Trust that you are who God says you are. That you're loved and forgiven. 
that you're made new and that you're righteous, that you're valued and you're gifted and you're empowered and that you're his child. This next sentence doesn't look right, but I'm going to say it out loud. You and I, we no longer have to keep the law. <laughs> We're not going to anyway 100%. Jesus. Jesus kept the law. He kept the law for us, knowing that we never could. So if you want to keep up that expectation of yourself that at some point you're going to keep the law and you're going to do what's right and God's going to look down on you and because of your good behavior, he's finally going to shine his face upon you, go for it. When you're out of breath, come back. Come back to grace. Come back to a God who's saying, you know, I just love you. Can I just, can I just love you? Is it okay if I just love you just the way you are? What if your kid thought that your love for them was dependent on their behavior? Wouldn't you hate that? Now those of you who have grandkids, wouldn't you like your grandkid to think, my grandparents' love for me is based on my behavior? You would never want your kid or your grandkid to think, do you want them to behave? Well, yeah, you do. But that's, that's a separate issue from your love for them. You, nothing can separate, well, this sounds familiar, nothing can separate them from your love, right? And that love, if they were to do the absolute worst thing you could ever imagine them ever doing, that very love would cause you deep pain And that deep pain would only prove and verify and validate the very love you still have for them. It's it's beyond that with God. It's beyond that with God. So let's learn something from the Israelites in Nehemiah's day. Let's stop trying and let's start trusting. Now there's there's another message that we'll say to try. But that's a different message. Yeah, yeah, we should try about other stuff, about other stuff. We should make an effort. We'll never earn, but as somebody once said, earning is not opposed to effort, but not about our relationship with God. Because ultimately, when you put your head down at night and you close your eyes, when you wake up in the morning and you open your eyes, does God love me? Am I loved by God? Does he value me? Am I still cherished by him and precious in his sight? And based on faith in Jesus Christ, that answer is always, always yes. Yes. Let's pray together. Father, we look at these chapters and they're they're disappointing to us because we see a people that we're not able to keep up. But then when we go to 30,000 feet and we look at all of Scripture, we see that there are just a few chapters in a whole Bible filled with stories of people who could not measure up with their behavior or their performance. And God, we are among their ranks. We are included. We are them. And Lord, this morning we give you thanks for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is worthy. He is worthy to 
as Re- Revelation 5 says, to loose the scroll, loosen the scroll, and to, and to open it up and to remove the seals because He purchased us with His very blood. God, for all of us in this room this morning, I pray that this week we would be able to close our eyes at night and open our eyes in the morning and know that we are cherished and valued and loved by you. And know that whatever we face in this world, in our flesh, from spiritual forces of darkness, that you are walking with us to help us, to encourage us, to sustain us, and to keep us. Help us to walk with you. And Lord, this week, help us to love you and to love others to make an impact for the kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.